In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnants of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Um, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give you peace, declares the Lord of hosts. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. This is the word of God. Uh, again, welcome to you if you're here for the very first time. My name is Reggie. I'm the young adult pastor here at Christ Church Midrand. And if you are joining us for the very first time, uh, you're joining us uh, on the second week of our series in the book of Haggai. Uh, we began a series titled Hashtag Rebuild. Just give me a little while again. Seems like everything is falling all over the place today. We began a series called Hashtag Rebuild. This series is from the book of Haggai. As the young adults, our theme for this year is Hashtag Rebuild. That's what we are dreaming God will be doing through us in this year. And as we are coming towards uh, chapter 3.5, the celebration of our 25th anniversary as a church, I also thought it would be appropriate for us to really be thinking about the kingdom of God and wanting to be part of the work that God is doing in his world. Uh, if you're here for the first, uh, if you, you weren't here last week, let me encourage you to consider listening to last week's sermon. It'll help you just uh, find your way around the book of Hagar. I think it'll be worth your while to listen to that sermon. Now, our sermon this evening is titled, as you can see behind me, Courage to Continue, And it will be from that passage that was read for us in Haggai 2, verse 1 to 9, actually. And for the next two weeks after today, we will look at the rest of Haggai. But let me pray for us as we come to God's word. Our Father, we pray this evening. That in the work that you have commissioned us to, that you have called us to, we would know that you have sent us with your presence and provision. Lord, would you help us to see that you are indeed with, you are indeed with us and that you are, you have provided for the work that you have called us to. And this we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, who has ever felt here like, uh, your expectations don't always seem to match up to reality. A lot of us. 
Oh, or that reality is never really exactly as we expect it to be. See, sometimes reality lays rubble to our expectations. Then we find ourselves in a pit of despair, discouragement, and perhaps frustration. And then we lose all sort of desire to continue whatever the work that we were doing is. And we think to ourselves, I expected things to go this way, but they haven't really. And I don't know if I've got the courage to continue. So I think I'm going to give up. If you have lived long enough, then I'm inclined to think that you have experienced something along these lines. Let let me tell you of a few experiences. One of my experiences, the first time I thought about learning how to drive, about driving, I should say. I thought I would walk into the car, I would pull the seat back, roll the seat down, have my hand, one hand on the, on the steering, and I'd be driving with the music blazing. That's, that's what I thought. And five minutes into the car ride, I just wanted to get out. I just wanted to give in. I was like, forget about driving. But I think the one person who probably wanted to get out of the car more was the person sitting right next to me. <laughs> I think I I heard him whisper, Jesus, take the wheel. (laughs) Where's Andrew? (laughs) I I mean, you and I have times like that where there's a collision of our expectations and reality. And perhaps yours was a little bit different. Perhaps this is how yours looks like. You woke up one Saturday morning and you decided in your mind, you know what, we're expecting a baby. And so what I would do now for this day is I'll paint this room. Or you decided there's a room in your house that you know needs some clearing up or it needs some cleaning up. And you wake up that Saturday morning and you've resolved in your head, this is what I will do. And two hours into doing the work, you look around and think, what have I done? It feels like I've not made any progress at all. I think the worst is when you're moving houses, when you're putting stuff into boxes or taking them out of boxes. You sit there and think to yourself, it feels like I haven't done anything thus far. And that lack of progress puzzles you, and perhaps more than puzzle you, it cripples you. It leaves you disappointed, discouraged, and perhaps a little bit frustrated. No, I can't take this anymore, you say to yourself. I'm going to pay someone else to do the job. So what? When was it for you that your expectation and reality did not seem to mesh. When expectations and reality just seemed to collide, was it when you decided, hey, I'll do gym? Was it the new diet? Working harder on the due date for your assignments? Was it working up early or on time for work? Was it, I'll be a little bit more wiser in my finances this year? What was it? See, when our expectations and reality don't match up, when our expectations and reality collide, I think at the first sight of the potholes of difficulty and hardship, you and I become discouraged. We become disappointed and frustrated. Now, perhaps this is what your week has been like. You were here last week, Sunday. You heard from God's word, God calling you and I to have our priorities aligned, to ensure that you and I are about the kingdom of God, that you and I are about his agenda instead of our own agenda. And so perhaps when you left here on Sunday, you woke up on on Monday morning and you'd resolved in your mind, 
that colleague or that family friend or that friend that I've been praying for, that I've been trying to build a relationship with, that I've been trying to share the gospel with. I'll make time to do it this coming week. I'll resolve to be about the kingdom of God this way. And then you have the conversation. And then it doesn't go as you expected. Or perhaps you have decided straight after last Sunday's sermon that you will stand for the gospel in any area in your workplace, whether it's moral or ethical, you would stand for the gospel. You would be about Jesus. That's what you said. You'd resolved that. And first thing you walk in Monday morning at work, you're just, you're just faced with multiple things that challenge your stand in the gospel, that challenge this stance you have said, I want to be about the kingdom of God. And perhaps your colleagues ridicule you, or your partners in business ridicule you for the moral stand that you've taken because of the gospel. Or perhaps you left here thinking, I want to work on my marriage. I want to really work hard on my marriage. I want to spend time intentionally with my spouse. I want to love my wife and present her as mature before the Lord. I want to submit to my husband. And then that Monday morning when you woke up, you guys were at each other's throats. You'd resolved that you would be about, all about Jesus. This is the expectation you had. This is what, I'm, this is what I will be about for the kingdom of God. And when the reality hits... You become disappointed. And perhaps Tuesday morning you decided, no, let me, let me give it a try again. And things did not go as you expected. And by Wednesday, perhaps, you were already soaking in the showers of disappointment and frustration. And you just thought to yourself, actually, things were a little bit easier when, when I was about my own agenda. When I, when I was about my own kingdom, things were a little bit easier then. See, I don't think... I have the courage to continue in this whole rebuild the kingdom of God thing. I don't think I have the courage to continue. Well, if that's you tonight, as I often say, you're in good company. And indeed you are, because there are fellow brothers around you and sisters who have probably had the kind of week you've had. And much more, in the passage that we have before us, the people of God seemed to be going through the same kind of struggle. See, these people whom Haggai spoke to are in a similar boat. Now, let me remind you that last week when Haggai had, had taught his message or his sermon, as soon as he had finished with this sermon, these people got up with zeal, enthusiasm, and with excitement and wanted to be about the kingdom of God. When God said, your priorities are not aligned, they realized that, and they said, God, we want to get our priorities aligned. We want to be about your kingdom, and they started building. But in our passage today, we realize that the atmosphere has changed. The ambiance, as people say, has changed. These very same people who were zealous for the kingdom of God, who were about the kingdom of God, their zeal has now been replaced with apathy and lack of passion, and no interest. And you see, if there's anything that, our, that their experiences can teach us, is that you and I will go through the same kind of experiences that they did. But much more we will see in this passage that God actually speaks to them. He brings a word in season. He brings this guy called the prophet Haggai, and he comes and brings the word to his people in season. See, God knows where his people are. He knows that they're discouraged. 
He knows that they're disappointed with how things have turned out. And you see, God knows how your week has gone. He knows that. See, although he might not send you the prophet Haggai, now you might wonder why he won't send you the prophet Haggai. If you want to know more about that, I would, I would, I would encourage you to listen to a sermon from a bit earlier this morning, from this morning by Martin and Jeremiah, where he actually talks about this. What God has given us is something that is much greater. He's given us his word. And you and I have his word. And from his word, God encourages us. He tells us how we can have the courage to continue. And as we go through our passage, let me just uh, lay it out for us how things we would, how we would do things tonight. In the same way as we did last week, I'll give us some context before we enter the passage or go into the passage. Then thereafter, we'll have two points. And in both these points, God makes a promise to his people. And this is the promise. He gives them the promise of his presence. And he also gives them the promise of his provision. But before we go into the passage... I think it will be worth our while to find out the context of this passage. What has happened to these people that they are now disappointed, that they're discouraged, that they feel they cannot continue with the work that they had started, the work that God had called them to? If you have that passage that was read for us earlier, would you open it and we'll read from Haggai chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 3. Now what we're looking at right now is the context. And then we'll get into our passage. Excuse me. Verse 1 says, In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? We'll stop there. We'll stop at verse 3 for our context. Now, I think the question that I said we need to ask ourselves as we come to the passage, how is it that these people who had zeal and enthusiasm for the kingdom of God and God's work have suddenly hit a time of despair and discouragement? What has happened? Well, what you and I will see as we go through the passages, last week their biggest problem was their priorities, and God spoke into that. But what we see today is their problem today is comparison. Comparison is at the root of their discouragement. <clears throat> Comparison is at the root of their discouragement. Now you may ask where I see that. Where do I make this case from this passage? Well, give me some time as I build up the case for us from those verses. The very first thing that I want you to see is the date that is given to us there. Verse 1, once again, look at what it says. In the seventh year, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Now, who can tell us what that date is? Who's got an interpretation or revelation from the Lord? No one. See, when you come to the book of Haggai, you realize a number of things. Dates are important. Now, last week, we actually went, we look, when we looked at the passage, we saw, we only mentioned the dates in passing. But today, I want us to spend just a little bit more time on that verse. In the seventh year, on the 21st day, 
the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Now, if you and I were to correspond that to our calendar today, it would be October the 17th that this word came to Haggai the prophet. Now, you might ask, what is October the 17th all about? Well, the, the, Jew, the Jews had a festival that they celebrated, one of their most important festivals, which is called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Shelters or the Feast of Harvest, which happened between the 13th and 20th of October. And you see, this word here comes right in the middle of that. Now, what does that mean? Now, let me tell you a little bit about this feast. See, in this feast, people had to commemorate or observe what God had done. They needed to observe in the, pres- in the present what God had done in the past and also reflect on how this festival points to future events that God would do. Now, the, f- the first question you may ask, then what is this past event that God had done? that they are meant to be celebrating. Well, the event that they were meant to be celebrating is the event where God showed his power and his presence and his provision during the Exodus. It is that event where God, by his outstretched arm, redeemed his people from the hand of Pharaoh. And God led his people by by the pillar of cloud by day and by the pillar of fire by night. And when God provided manna in the desert. See, when they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, they needed to have the Exodus in mind. They needed to have that event where God miraculously displayed his power to the rest of the world. But as they are celebrating the events now, if you'd remember anything about last week's sermon, they would wonder about God's power. They would wonder about God's presence and provision. One, those there was what you would call an economic struggle in their land. So there wasn't a harvest of any kind, you would say. And as they look around, they would have wondered themselves whether God is with them. See, what would make matters even worse is to know that on this very day, Solomon stood before the, the Israelites a couple of decades earlier, and he dedicated a temple for God that he had built, a temple where God's presence would dwell, a temple where God showed his provision and power to the rest of the world. And at this moment, these people who are looking at a temple that has been destroyed, a temple that that only lies in ruins now, they would have wondered about God's power and his presence. Is God really with us? As they've begun the work, these are some of the things that would have come to their mind. They would have been thinking about these things. See, when Solomon built his temple, he had ample resources. Solomon could get experts from all over the world to come and be part of the building of the temple. But these guys, they had minimal resources, very little resources to be able to build this kingdom, this this temple. And so perhaps some of their elders looked, and they remembered the old temple. And looked, at this, and, and looked at the plans for the new temple that was to be built. And looked at the provision. They realized the big task that lay ahead of them. They realized that it would not be like the same, the same temple that Solomon had built. And perhaps a spirit of pessimism spread around the camp. And so from conversation to conversation, people sudden, suddenly started losing Losing the confidence that God was with them. 
that God would work through them. Now I want you to see something about what Haggai says there. When he says in verse 3, Who is left among you who sold this house in its former glory? He's actually talking about the temple, the very same temple. When he, when he reads this verse, he's not saying to the people, hey, compare the old temple to the new temple. He's not saying that because the new temple had not yet been built. See, it would take the people four years to be able to build this temple. So what he's calling them to do is look at the temple before it was destroyed and how it lies before them. And you see, as the people look at that, they wonder to themselves about God's presence they wonder about God's provision for them. But Haggai has a word of encouragement to them, a word that will help them to have courage to continue. See, although the people would have been disappointed, here Haggai brings a word to help them out. Now something else that is not evident for you to see in the passage, something that could have perhaps discouraged them as well, let me remind you is that the temple lies in ruins. The temple has been destroyed. So for the first month, the people probably did not do any building. So probably for that first month, all that they did was clear the rubble from the the temple that had been destroyed. Perhaps all they did that month was lay out the plans on how to build the temple. They thought about how the work, how God would do this work. They started making stone. And so they had not yet started the work. And And as they celebrate this time, Perhaps at this very moment, they start to wonder whether God is with them in the same way that he was with the, with the previous generation, with the generation that he had led out of the Exodus. And so as I said, God gives them two promises. God gives them a word. He knows where his people are. He gives them two promises. And the one promise rests on his presence and the other rests on his provision. So let's go to our first point now. The promise of his presence. And let's read from verse 4 to verse 6. You now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all the people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. See, God calls them to three things. He gives them three commands. The first command that he says to them, he says, hey, be strong. That's the first thing he says to them. And if you notice in the passage, it is repeated three times. He says, be strong to them. And then he calls them to work. And then he also says to them, they should not fear. Now, now that alone would have not really encouraged the people. God coming to them and say, hey, just continue with the work, be strong. See, the great encouragement comes from these words. Listen to what God says to them. He says, for I am with you, declares the Lord. And he says, my spirit is in your midst, so fear not. See, in their disappointment, God says to his people, I am with you. My spirit remains among you. See, just as I was with the Exodus generation, I'm with you. Just as the covenant I had made with the previous generation, I'm with you 
I'm with you in the power of my spirit. Now, this would have greatly encouraged the people who associated the temple of God with God's presence. See, these people would have, would have thought, yeah, from history we see that the temple represents that God, God dwells among us. It, rep- it represents God's dwelling among us. And so not having a temple before them, a place where God dwells, a place where they would bring their sacrifices and thanksgiving, and, and knowing that the next one would not be as glorious as the first would have made them to be a little bit uneasy. And so God here assures them, I'm with you. God doesn't say, hey, go and do the work first, then I will be with you. If you notice a bit earlier, in chapter 1, this is something that God has said to them before. Look at verse 13 in chapter 1. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I'm with you, declares the Lord. So even before they go and do the work, God says to them, I'm with you. And although the people might have been tempted to think, man, we need to finish building this temple in order for us to have certainty that God is with us. God lets them know that here, my spirit is with you. The very same spirit that was among your forefathers as they left Egypt is with you. See, God says in their difficulty, in your difficulty, your difficulty is not a sign that I've I've abandoned you. So brothers and sisters, if you are going through a hard time, in this past week, you had prioritized or you had said, I want to be about the kingdom of God, and you had a difficult week, listen to this. Our Lord Jesus Christ says these very same words to us. He says, I'm with you. He says these very same words in Matthew 28, verse 20. Listen to what Jesus says to the, to the disciples as he commissions them, as he sends them out for work. He does not say, go work, then my spirit will be with you. Rather, he sends them with his spirit. Matthew 28, verse 20 reads as follows. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what you and I can learn from that passage, see, as God was with his people then, Jesus comes and says to us, as I send you out, to be about the kingdom of God, to build the kingdom of God, as you go out and live for Jesus, as you go out and make disciples who make disciples, I'm with you. And so when you struggle at work tomorrow, know this, I'm with you. And so when you struggle to to really comprehend, God, how is it that I've spent time praying for this person and sharing the gospel with them, but things have not gone as expected. No, I'm with you. God says he's with you in that time, and he'll be walking with you as he draws the person closer to himself. As you work on your marriage for the sake of the kingdom, God says, I'm with you. Whatever it is that God has called you, is pushing you towards for the sake of his kingdom, he says, I am with you. And you see, in the same way, although those words are not said to us to be strong and courageous, to, to fear not, because God is with us, by the power of his spirit, then you and I really don't have any reason to fear. We have no reason to not feel any strength because he has given us his spirit to strengthen us. See, God reminds us that he's with us. 
Now, I think often the temptation for us as Christians is to think, God, I would be more confident of your presence with me if I had a pillar by, by, a pillar of cloud by day and if I had a pillar of fire by night. See, if you were working in the same way as you did with that Exodus generation, as these people are looking in the past, you and I attempted to do the same thing and say, God, if you were working in my life in the same way as you do with them, if I had your presence in the same way as they do, then I'll be more confident as I go out and live for your kingdom. But you know what Jesus says to us? <clears throat> Jesus says to us, he has, an, he has a ministry that is more excellent than that of the old covenant. Jesus says to us, actually, you and I don't have God's spirit just dwelling in the community among us. Rather, God's spirit dwells in you. God is in you with his spirit. In John 14 and John 17, Jesus emphasizes that so clearly. He prays over and again in John 17. God, would you let them know? Father, would you let them know that you are in them, with them as I am, with you and I in them? Man, whatever difficulty you're going through, as you try and live for the kingdom of God, as you try and be about his kingdom, know this. You have God's spirit with you. And so as we sang a bit earlier, we can say that. And we can know that God is with us as we do his work. That he's really indeed working with us. See, God is indeed always with us and by the power of his spirit. I think this is one of the great encouragements we can take from that verse, from those verses that are before us. God promises us his presence in the same way as he does them for the work he has commissioned them to. Now, this is the other thing. This is the other promise that God makes towards them. He makes the, he makes the promise of provision. So let's read from verse, from verse 6 and see what God says about his provision towards them. Haggai chapter 2 from verse 6, it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the seas and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The letter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, Bilela did say that one of the things that would have discouraged these people was the lack of resources, that as they looked around them, as they look at the minimal resources they have to build this temple, that would have discouraged them to look back on, on, on what Solomon had in order to build the kingdom of God. See, see, they would have thought about the treasures that were taken by Babylon. Some of the treasures that were returned, apart from the Ark of the Covenant. See, they would have thought about the, op- the opposition that they're currently facing. The opposition that has led to now the king of Persia, Darius, not giving them any resources to be able to build this temple. They would have, they would have looked at the minimal resources before them and wondered about God's provision. 
Has God really blessed this work that we are about to do? Will he really extend his provision towards us? Well, a few things that God wants them to know so that they are certain that he will provide for the work that he has called them to. One of the first things that God wants them to see is his sovereignty over all things. That he's the creator of all things and that all things belong to him. So let's go to verse 8 and listen to what God says. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. So very often, when we think about the work that God has commissioned us to, the work that God calls us to do, I think as individuals and as a church, we can be tempted to feel perhaps we do not have the right resources to, to embark on this work that God has called us to. We might be tempted at those times to think that. Well, here what we see is the God who owns everything, the God who is a creator, is the God who says to them, he will provide for the work he's called them to. So when you read verse 7, look at what verse 7 says. Verse 7 says, And I will shake all the nations, so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with my glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now that phrase, I will shake the heavens, um, implies a number of things. One of which is, God there is showing his vic- his, that he's a victor. That in battle, God is a victor. This is one of the things that God wants his people to see. That anything or anyone that will come against the work that he has called them to will not be able to succeed. God will provide for them because he is the victor. And what God wants them to see is he will actually be able to overcome these nations that are before them and provide the resources that they need. He will provide for them. God will pull, will pull all stops to build his kingdom. And if you notice very well in that verse, the kind of things that it's referring to are material. Now, one of, my, one of our temptations as Christians, when we see something like that, when we see God saying he will bless his people with material things in order that they'll be able to do his work, we, we, we often get a little bit uh, uncomfortable, don't we? We will, we will tend to spiritualize something like that. Like perhaps God is referring to spiritual resources. Well, God here is referring to material resources. And he does provide for his people. But the way that he does it. So as you read through the Old Testament and understand how God works, it's often not in the way that you and I think it, he does. See, you and I see one thing. We see one mountain and we think, this is how God's promises work in the Old Testament. Or throughout all of history. Whereas really how God's promises work is, the closer we get to the mountain, we realize that there's actually another mountain. And that there's more and more. Now I'll clarify what I mean by that. See here, God a bit later provides resources for them through King Darius. King Darius provides resources for these people, for God's people, in order to be able to do God's work. Now, the people would have not in any way thought, oh, no, Darius is being nice. They would have known that God is the one who's provided for the work that they're doing. They would have known that. And you see, a couple of centuries, a couple of decades later, there's another man who comes, a man called Herod, and he builds and he almost refurbishes this temple. And actually, he gets this temple to look much better than the temple that Solomon had built. And so what we see there that actually is that actually God provides for his people and the work that he calls them to. 
And so in the same way, when we come to the New Testament, you and I should know in the same way he's provided for them, he will provide for us. These are the lessons that you and I should be taking as Christians, that God will provide for his work. A bit earlier we were saying, It is God who will do his work. And if it is his work, you and I should not be stressing about resources that will be needed for the building of his kingdom. So I don't know what resources you need in your personal life in order to be able to stand for Jesus in your workplace, in order to be better able to stand for the gospel. So as a church, as we move towards chapter 3.5, we should not in any way shrink to think. We should not be expecting that God would do greater things among us. We should not shrink, but we should know that God does indeed provide for his people. He does provide for his work. And often provides in ways that are beyond our thinking. So the Bible is filled with passages where we see how God provides for his work. Paul, a number of times, as he writes to the churches, says, calls the churches to use how God has blessed them in order to be able to use those finances for other churches, in order that God's work would continue elsewhere. And I think in the same way, where we see Paul's expectation of how God would provide for his work, you and I should, be, should have the same expectation that God would provide for his work. God does indeed provide for his work. And you, and you see, after you've labored, after you've stood for the gospel, and it feels like that little piece that you have labored in, does, you can't seem to understand how it fits in with the big picture. Oh, when you've labored for the gospel, when you're certain that God is with you by the power of his spirit and that he will provide, but sometimes reality just knocks you down. At those times, as you continue to work and labor as God calls his people to do here, I think this is one of the encouragements you can take. Tim Keller has a book called Every Good Endeavor. And in the book, he paints a picture of what it looks like for us to be working for the kingdom of God. And he paints a picture of a guy who's, who's painting a flower, or who's painting a leaf. And over and again, he's painting this leaf, and it doesn't seem to come together as he wants it to. And you see what this guy ultimately wants to paint or wants to draw is a tree. But he can't seem to get past this thing that he's doing now. One of the great encouragements he brings from that book, quoting from uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, is that he points out that when actually the man gets to heaven, he, he realizes that there is indeed a tree. But that tree is a combination of the work that he has done and others have done that God has inspired them to do with the power of his spirit and his presence. And I know sometimes you and I are tempted to think, man, I don't see how me standing for the gospel in that small area in my workplace actually fits in with building the kingdom of God. I don't, know, I don't see how standing for the gospel in my marriage, I don't see how sharing this, the gospel with this one person actually fits in in the bigger tree. But you see, one of the great encouragements we get from Scripture is to know that one day when we stand before our King, we will see how all of these things fit together. How your labor 
Even in the times when you felt disappointed and discouraged. And you ask for God to give you courage, to give you certainty that he's with you through the power of his spirit. To, to know that he provides for you and his church. See, you and I at those times should know, should always remember that our labor is not in vain. That ultimately, the work we'll do, we do now is part of the work that God is doing to renew and restore his world. See, our world before us, this house of peace that he speaks of, this shalom that he speaks of in this passage. When he says shalom, he speaks of perfect peace. He speaks of peace between God and man, and peace between man and himself, man with, in right relationship with those around him, and man in right relationship with creation. As we labor for God's kingdom, although we may not see that perfect shalom on this side of heaven, then the great encouragement we can have is, our labor is not in vain. We're working alongside God as he restores his kingdom. And eventually, these great expectations we have for the kingdom of God, God will fulfill eventually when Jesus returns. So you and I can have courage to continue, knowing that God is with us. But you see, when we stand before our king that very day, Our focus will not be on the work we have done for the sake of his kingdom. Rather, our focus will be not the temple now, but the throne. See, God is building his kingdom. Ultimately, God's throne will stand on the earth. God will reign supreme over all. And you see, the great encouragement we will will get then is the centrality of the throne of God on that very day. A bit earlier, as as the stuff we read a chapter that, that, that really got me thinking from Revelation. Listen to this quote from there. So John Stott takes um, Revelation 4 verse 2 and he just explains it. And this is one of the things that he says. He says, we pause and reflect whether this is our vision of ultimate reality. Now he's talking about the centrality of, of, the, of the throne of Jesus He says, our vision of the future tends to be negative. We seize on the assurance of the revelation that one day there will be no more hunger or thirst, no more pain or tears, no more sin or death or curse, for all these things would have passed away. It would be better and more biblical, he says, however, to focus not so much on the absence, on these absences, as on the cause of their absence, namely the central dominating presence of God's throne. See, as we labor with God, God ultimately one day will bring down his throne. The new heavens, the new Jerusalem will come down on our earth. And you and I then will see that our labor was not just, well, our labor was not in vain, one. And two, our focus will not be on our work, but on this king, who now sits before us. Let us pray. Lord, very often we are tempted to to, to desire the experiences of the past, to, to want you to work in the same way that you did in the Exodus, And sometimes, Lord, 
in the times when our expectations don't seem to mesh with reality, we become discouraged and wonder about your presence and provision. And so this evening, Lord, I pray that we would have been encouraged to realize that your presence tonight is, is with us in a much greater way than during the Exodus. You are with us through the power of your spirit to encourage us, to help us along as we work towards building your kingdom. And Lord, I pray that we would also not shy away from the idea that you provide in order that your kingdom will be built. And I pray as your people would come expectant and pray that you would provide whatever means, whatever is needed, in order that your work would continue, in order that your kingdom would be built. Lord, help us to know that when we have sought first your kingdom, indeed you will add the things we need to build your kingdom. So give us a greater assurance of your presence and your provision, and you help us to see that the work that you have started, you will bring to completion, because it is your work. And in Jesus' name we've prayed. Amen.